on this episode of the London Lyceum. We're bringing you our first ever live roundtable event. This was on a Protestant political theology, so you're going to get Brad, Little John, Timon Klein, Andrew Walker, and Jonathan Lehman all hashing out and discussing all things political theology. So if you haven't watched it yet, you can go check it out on YouTube. You can watch that there. Or if you're more into the whole, I like to mow my lawn while I listen to my podcast, do it here. That's what this is for. There is five, six minutes of sort of introductory material laying down the groundwork, the ground rules. So if you're already familiar, feel free to skip ahead to like minute six or seven where the discussion really starts. This is a lot of fun. It's a ton of action-packed content. Obviously, it's a full two hours in length, so don't miss out. Listen to the whole thing. I think you'll really benefit. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, welcome old friends and new friends to our very first live event uh, for the London Lyceum, a special roundtable event on a Protestant political theology. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And let me give you a little introduction to who the London Lyceum is, if you're not familiar. If this is your first experience with us, uh, we're an institution that seeks to foster serious thinking for a serious church. By creating an intellectual culture that is filled with charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we really seek to embody the meekness of wisdom that's found in James 3.17, because we think right thinking is inseparable from the cardinal virtues of faith, hope, and love. And yes, we are all about thinking, which is why we decided to try this new format, which I'm really excited about. And our goal for them is twofold. So first, we want to promote our values of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism with those who think differently on important topics. And if you know anything about us, we like to talk all sorts of people across the theological spectrum, and we want to treat everybody with, res- with respect, which leads us to our second one, which is we want to provide clarity and greater understanding on these topics. So we want to promote a serious, virtuous kind of thinking that we hope will encourage uh, you both in thought and deed. So now let's go ahead and get down to business, because I know you guys aren't here to listen to me. You're here to listen to these esteemed brethren discuss a Protestant political theology, and I'm really, really, really pumped about this. So I'm excited to learn myself. Let me introduce each of them, and we'll get going. So first, we have Dr. Andrew T. Walker, who serves as the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also a fellow with the Ethics and and Public Policy Center and Managing Editor of World Opinions. He is the author and editor of several books related to the intersection of Christian ethics and church-state studies. We also have Dr. Jonathan Lehman with us, who's an elder at elder at Cheverly Baptist Church in suburban Washington, D.C. He's the editorial director at Nine Marks, a ministry dedicated to building healthy churches, and he teaches at a number of seminaries, co-hosts the podcast, Pastor's Talk, and has written over a dozen books, including Political Church and How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics for Divided Age. He and his wife, Shannon, have four daughters. We also have Dr. Brad Littlejohn, who is the president of the Davenant Institute and a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He received his PhD in 2014 from the University of Edinburgh, working under Oliver O'Donovan on the political theology of Richard Hooker, a topic he's continued to explore in subsequent research and writing. He writes regularly at platforms such as World Magazine, Mere Orthodoxy, American Reformer, The American Conservative, and National Affairs in the fields of Christian ethics, political theology, political philosophy, both from a historical vantage point and with application to current affairs. 
He lives in South Carolina with his wife, Rachel, and four extremely disputatious children. And then finally, we have Tymon Klein, who's a graduate of Rutgers Law School, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Wright State University. He's an attorney in New Jersey and a research fellow at the Craig Center for the Study of the Westminster Standards at Westminster, where he's working on natural law theory and Puritanism, specifically in the thought of Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, and other assembly divines. And his popular writing has appeared in American Mind, Arrow Magazine, The the American Spectator, National Review, and American Reformer, among others, and he's a regular contributor at Modern Reformation. His recent academic work has been published at Unio Cum Christo Appalachian Law Journal, St. Thomas Journal of Law and Public Policy, and the Jonathan Edwards Miscellaneous Companion. Now, one thing I do want to, I guess two things actually I need to do before we let these gentlemen chat. Uh, a few housekeeping items. First, I've got uh, three stacks of books here to give away to attendees. Um, how I've decided to give them away is if, if you want to win one of these, just tweet something about the round table while, while you're watching with the hashtag a Protestant political theology and tag the London Lyceum so that I can just randomly pick three of you and I'll ship them to you free of charge. They're books from our guests. So time and you need to write some books because I've got, got books from everybody here except for you. And then second, here is a rundown of how things are going to go. Each of our guests are going to give eight minutes-ish of an initial constructive statement before they have-ish seven minutes to provide a negative rebuttal of sorts. And at that point, we'll have a half hour of free discussion time before we conclude with 20 to 30 minutes of questions from you, the audience. So there are two ways you can ask questions. First, you can simply chat that your question in the chat bar on the right that you see. You can type it in, put your first name, done. That is obviously the easiest way to do it. And second, you can actually click that little live call-in button on the bottom of your screen. Uh, if you do that, know that you will be recorded with us. And if you want to do that, you're going to need to be on Chrome. And whenever your question is answered, you'll need to click that red button to leave the session because I don't have the ability to boot you out. So I'm trusting you that you'll click that button once you're done. So finally, we are ready. Our key topic for discussion is what does a Protestant political theology look like? What is the role of the church in the public square? So think questions like, how much should the church seek to reform the government according to Christian principles? Should the church seek a Protestant Christendom? Should individual churches promote political pan campaigns, etc.? So let's go ahead and begin with Dr. Walker. I'll let you start, and I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you so much, Jordan. Um, just want to say thanks for the invitation and uh, I should also note that um, all of us here agree on so much. And so what makes this conversation fun is that it's an in-house conversation amongst friends and brothers who share so much in common. Uh, my remarks this evening, um, I'm framing my conversation in uh, what I'm calling a Baptist natural law approach. Um, the, the key question I think a public theology needs to answer is this. How can Christian faithfulness in the public arena and in the church's relationship to the state not devolve into equal and opposite errors of either, one, a withdrawal and sectarianism that views political engagement as irrelevant or corrupting, or two, degrees of establishment forms of church-state relations that can instrumentalize faith for, for political ends, thus deadening conversionary Christianity. Now, on the issue of withdrawal, um, I want to very clearly state that I reject pietistic claims that the gospel is apolitical or God is not a Republican or a Democrat, um, equivocating claims such as these, um, I, I don't think they're theologically, morally, or politically serious. 
Um, and I also dislike how robust involvement of religion in the public square um, immediately adverts to kind of mealy-mouthed accusations of Christian nationalism, um, which is used to disqualify conservative Christian moral claims. But on the issue of establishmentarianism, uh, I kind of come at this from different couple angles. Um, I argue that religion plays a necessary role in self-government, um, in national identity, and public morality. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here kind of along the lines of de Tocqueville. Um, but I view arrangements such as kind of formal establishments that you would see in something like Anglicanism as a failed project. Um, in such arrangements, uh, I view the gospel has been absorbed by national identity and cultural cohesion and thus functions as more or less an ineffectual chaplain uh, to a culture with a terminal, terminal disease. Um, and this is not a bug, but a feature to establishment-type arrangements. Um, in, in my view, established religion deadens orthodoxy over time. Um, if Christianity cannot be linked to the state without serious problems resulting, as I think is the case, um, perhaps that is not because a more perfect formula needs invented, but because establishment simply does not work at the root. Um, and the argument against establishment of church and state, I think, is the history of the establishment of church and state. Um, it has had no historical success in serving either the church or the state, but has, in my view, accelerated the secularization and liberalization of both. Um, so in my view, it's, it's not pragmatically useful, historically desirable, or biblically sanctioned. Now, this brings me to my more um, affirmative view. Uh, a correct church-state relationship will have the relationship between creation order and redemptive order, or nature and grace, depending on how you want to categorize this, properly calibrated, which I think the Baptist tradition captures correctly. Um, but first, before I explain why I defend the Baptist perspective on these matters, um, I want to be introspective and critical on where I think Baptists have gotten certain things wrong. Um, I think Baptists have virtually had no concept of the common good, thus giving the impression that Christian political engagement is more or less self-serving. Um, it's had very little natural law tradition behind it, which connects to my claim of an absent common good theory. Um, and, and then owing to our history, the Baptist tradition has conceived of the state in largely negative terms. Um, thus offering, I think, little positive vision for statecraft and the responsible stewarding of political power. So I don't come to this thinking the Baptists have it perfect. I think that we have some deficiencies uh, that we need to work on, um, but I still think we have uh, th the best kind of system in place for a better formulation. So understanding the relationship between creation and redemption posits several axioms to consider. First, the state is a creation order inst uh, institution tasked with upholding justice. The church is a redemption order institution tasked with proclaiming the gospel that can necessarily create creators, uh, creators of impact within the political order. Uh, third, because of my views on inaugurated eschatology, these spheres are occupied by people with overlapping identities. Thus, in, in my view, while church and state should be kept institutionally distinct, the role of religion influencing one's ethics, which then informs one's politics, cannot be kept separate. Fourth is that I think Christians need a stronger natural law doctrine that upholds the integrity of creation order. 
Here I'm thinking of a, of a quote by Richard John Newhouse, one of my favorite. He says this. He says, there's nothing necessary in the public realm to answering the question of how ought we order our life together that cannot be debated and considered reasonably on the basis of arguments that are accessible to everybody. Um, fifth, the mission of the church and state is a separate issue from the role of individual Christians working throughout civil society and even government to make it accord with what the Baptist faith and message declares as a Christian's uh, obligation to seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. Um, so a, a few final remarks, and then I'll hand it over back to Jordan. Um, I believe in a free church and a free state where robust conceptions of religious liberty are protected and Christian citizens are armed with the ability to make powerful arguments that appeal to reason. Um, but those arguments, they, they emanate ultimately from revelation, in my view. Um, and moreover, we have the capacity to engage in political activity to reform and shape the government in a direction of our preference. Um, moreover, the furtherance of justice is inseparable from a positive vision for statecraft. And statecraft entails the responsible stewarding of power in the direction of truth and the common good and the disempowering of falsehood. And this in no way ought to conflict with Baptist theology. Baptists need a better theology of the state. Um, related to this, our heavenly citizenship, of course, is the truest reality uh, that reconfigures our orientation to the political but it does not evacuate us from the responsibilities of statecraft. Um, a Christian politics is one of subordinating the powers, but not repudiating their temporal legitimate rule. Uh, and I should also say that I want to reject what I call political Gnosticism, um, as though there is this kind of platonic ideal to politics that does not require engaging the kingdoms of the world for what they fundamentally are, worldly, temporal, and creational ordinances designed for proximate justice. So in, in fullness of picture, uh, a Christian politics refuses to ascribe to the political orders a power that is not theirs to begin with. Um, but even still, the city of God acts amid the city of man, where ultimate divergence as far as our loves and our commitments um, still allows for a temporal penultimate convergence of justice. And so I, I think as a Baptist, we should still be very much in favor of active engagement in the public square. So uh, four conclusions to this. Uh, Baptist political thought ought to insist upon a positive vision for statecraft pursued for the common good uh, in publicly accessible ways uh, with a strong doctrine of religious liberty for all. Uh, it should include a rejection of church-state arrangements that instrumentalize religion uh, and then fourth, that also avoids sectarian withdrawal. And so with that, Jordan, I'll turn it back over to you. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Excellent work. So now, Timon, I'll let you go ahead and give your positive vision uh, for what a Protestant political theology should look like. Uh, thanks, Jordan, and thanks for uh, to you and Brandon for hosting this uh, discussion. Um, very excited about it, and also thanks to Andrew for already getting us started and offering some uh, thoughtful remarks. Um, I want to begin with uh, sort of our our current context uh, in political discourse, um, and contemplate the the need for a reinvigorated 
uh, Protestant political theory uh, together. The, um, the There's been much space opened up recently, it would seem, from whatever you want to call it, the new right, the post-liberal uh, conversation, whatever. Um, it's provided space for a reconsideration of older ideas and reconsideration of uh, ones we've taken for granted uh, too easily. Um, and what I think Christians, as well as uh, probably Americans generally, but certainly Christians are looking for, is a substantive vision of uh, the good and of social order that they can sort of sink their teeth into, um, or at least uh, plant their flag in. And they're not looking for um, what what would now be considered sort of baptized liberal truisms that have uh, supplied basically the only political discourse we have to operate with for the past several decades. Um, so I do think this this conversation is coming at a good time, and I think there's um, much to debate. I don't think anyone can have it figured out yet, but what I want to offer is a sort of um, preliminary positive vision of what political Protestant political theory should be because of what it used to be or has been. Um why has Protestant political theory, at least in my view, failed in the modern era? Um, why does it not, uh, at a practical level, energize? Why does it not, at um, a theoretical level, answer the most pressing questions? Um, and you see what I, I would identify as the most pressing questions. You could sum them up as uh, the two poles of political discourse right now, one being justice and one being the common good. And one of those animates um, the, the political left and the other animates the, uh, the new political right, the further right. Um, and these things are set up as dichotomies and are, we don't seem to have a political theory that can reconcile the two. Um, so I suggest a, a return to, uh, what our forefathers gave us. Um, as I already said, in part, the problem is theoretical, or at least that's where I'd like to begin, because if you don't have a, an ideal, I don't think you can um, move forward. It's wrong to begin with concessions rather than the ideal. Uh, the concessions, according to prudence, come later. Uh, for far too long, the, the two kingdoms paradigm, I would say, has uh, predominated in whatever passes for Protestant political theory. Uh, there's been many much ink spilled over this topic. Um, but it ultimately has uh, failed to produce what we might want it to. And part of the reason for that is that the paradigm is, is a tired paradigm because it's being forced to carry a load or perform work that it was never meant to do. Um, it's been pr improperly situated as corresponding not just to the invisible material world, but to the church and state as such uh, within the temporal realm. Um, so many many scholars um, in recent decades have have sort of identified this in our favorite magisterial reformers. Uh, Harold Hopful has shown that in his in his study of Calvin that uh, his subjects twofold regiment is the the uh, language he preferred or administration of the two powers um, that guided guided Calvin's theory of social order. It was not two kingdoms, and this is as as commonly understood because it situated both church and state within the in, within the uh, temporal order. So already you've, you've violated the sort of colloquial understanding of that doctrine. Uh, so too with Luther, as William Wright has shown, uh, Zwingli is perhaps the most uh, classical theorist here. His vision was that of the Corpus Christianum, uh, meaning that church and state, uh, he didn't have the, the latter term in his vocabulary at the time, uh, were two species of the same genus with the distribution of labor between the two, but ultimately harmonious. Uh, no real concept of distinction for him. 
Um, and indeed, I think the story of the uh, political theory in the Reformation is the story um, of so many other doctrines, which is a return to um, what they saw as pure doctrine standing behind the innovations of late medieval uh, uh, theologians, uh, the bad schoolmen, we might say. And this is, this is still the case in political theory. The, the magisterial reformers represent a return to the Galatian formula proper uh, that is stripped of its late medieval innovations from Boniface, wherein the church was uh, situated as the source or at least mediator of all power, rather than both powers receiving directly their power from God. And the reformers uh, performed this maneuver by um, elevating the, the magistrate back to his proper place, um, which is to say his proper religious role. Um, and you see this in, throughout the 16th and 17th century literature where there's so much uh, time and thought spent on the role of the magistrate and the role of government, more so than in the medieval period had been spent on the political role of the church or the social role of the church because they're trying to rehabilitate uh, this image. Um, and so out of that, that tradition, out of that effort that I think was a, a noble one and is a needed one for ourselves as well, we can arrive at a certain, uh, what I want to say are a few premises of uh, Protestant political theory, historically speaking, that we should begin to work from and we should form our discourse and our uh, policy making and our theory around some of these premises. Uh, the first premise would be that man is um, a, a spiritual and social being. It's not particularly controversial. This is an Aristotelian insight that is repeated over and over throughout the ages. Um, but what we would say, uh, extending that further into our current discussion, is that he's both body and soul. And if he is both body and soul, and um, social order is a product of man, and meant, of course, to benefit man and serve man, it must therefore in some way perhaps a mysterious way, correspond to and reflect his, the nature of man himself. So our anthropology is very, very important for understanding what social order should look like. And anthropology, man's anthropology, uh, wonderfully made by God, is one of harmony, and it's one of congruence, and it's one of a, a agreement between the various powers man has uh, in his soul or in his body, both performing their, their appropriate um, jobs, we might say. Uh, the second premise would be that government, uh, being directly from God, as already established, um, is not a mere concession to the fall. I think this is a wrong um, uh, sort of assumption that most evangelicals today have. If you start talking about the government, uh, the, there will be some comment about, you know, it's necessary because of evil in the world, it's here to restrain evil. It certainly does no less than that. Um, but it's not a mere concession to the fall or an accommodation of the fall. It's in fact good. And even in paradise, there would have been something like government because men need to be ordered. And order is not a response to sin. Order is a reflection of God's character and his law. And so order would always be a, 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 a aspect of or a feature of human interaction. So we might say we'd still have traffic laws. Uh, just because you have order in government doesn't mean that there's that there's people wanting to disobey it. Of course, it would be a perfectly harmonious government, but hierarchy would nevertheless be in play. Uh, thirdly, government rules uh, over men. As I already mentioned, man is body and soul. So if government rules over men and not just one aspect of man, uh, then he must rule over both body and soul. 
Uh, he must uh, address and pursue the full common good of his people, which considers full human beings, meaning that he has an interest in man's soul and eternal well-being. Otherwise, he's only governing uh, animals um, and not not the, uh, the image of God. Um, fourthly, the religious role following from that, um, we could look to... To, to briefly demonstrate the point, some of our, our forebears, where you have um, in his Holy Commonwealth, Richard Baxter talking about um, these aspects. Um, and what he, what he gets at is if, there, if the magistrate, if the civil power has a religious interest, if he's interested in the, the well-being of man's soul, not just his body, um, then he has to be interested in promoting the proper legislative, the organ of legislative competency over these spiritual things, and therefore he has to be um, willing to promote the church itself, and there has to be agreement and harmony between the two. Uh, there has to be a mutual sort of support, what John Cotton would call a, a coordinate states in his discourse on civil government in 1663. Um, and you see this all over the place. You see it in uh, Franciscus Junius talking about it's the proper role of the magistrate to lead his people to the gates of eternal salvation. Uh, this is what a, magistra- a good and godly magistrate is to do. Um, so not only is he directly interested in the people and their souls, he's inter- because he realizes God has not provided him with the uh, fullest legislative competency to dictate doctrine and to promulgate it, he must look to the organ that God has uh, supplied with that competency and that authority, and therefore he must support the church. Um, and in this sense, we come to uh, two perhaps controversial uh, premises I'll add, and then, and then with my last closing comment. Um, the first controversial one is then that in some sense, and this is where the action is, the, uh, the, the state, the temporal power, the magistrate, must in some way be submitted to that of the spiritual power because it's from the spiritual power that he receives Thomas. his moral understanding. Yes. We're we're over 10. All right, man. Um, And last one would be that uh, this necessarily uh, requires some level of coercion over and against the things that threaten the church. So I was close. Thank you. (laughs) You know, Tymo was trash talking that he was going to come in under. I was, I was not even close. (laughs) Thanks. So we we can go ahead and transition to uh, Dr. Lehman for his uh, first constructive statement. Uh, Brothers, likewise, grateful to share this conversation with you. Appreciate each one of these brothers, Uh, Timon, Brad, Andrew. uh, Consider each of them friends, and uh, this is a conversation among friends, though we disagree, and uh, hopefully we can uh, affirm both the things that we have in common and sharpen the things what we don't. Uh, To serve this conversation, I'm going to spend about the first, first three quarters of my time on prolegomena. And then maybe if I have time left, take a hard turn towards summarizing my political theology. And I'm, I'm emphasizing prolegomena in part because well, Andrew said a lot of things I agree with, uh, and because I think a lot of our disagreements depend on these questions of biblical method, and hopefully that will serve the larger conversation, even if it's not as immediately satisfying. So, prolegomena. I think most human beings are free, think we're free, we assume we're free to do whatever we want until someone comes along and says no. That's the natural born posture of every three-year-old. I'll stick my fingers where I want until mommy slaps my hand. It's the natural posture of every 30-year-old. I'll drive like I want until the policeman says no. And I think too often we as Christians can approach questions of church and state in the same way. The state can do, a church can do whatever it deems wise until the Bible forbids it. 
And I think that's the wrong way to read the Bible. I want to turn that upside down. I want to say that human creatures, vessels made out of clay, possessors of no intrinsic rights, intrinsic rights except what God gives, don't have any authority, not even the authority to take an apple off a tree and eat it until the Creator says of His creation, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now, indeed, the Lord has given us quite a bit of authority in the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Yet, hopefully, you still take my point. Part of being a creature and not the creator means you must be authorized. That is, you must give, be given moral license, definition of authority, moral license, to do anything. Martin Luther says, For when man does not have that for which he has not previous authority or sanction of the word of God, such conduct is not acceptable to God and may, may be considered as either vain or useless. Jeremiah speaks more severely. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. In other words, friends, I'm saying this should change how we read the Bible. As we investigate what authority does the church have, what authority does the state have, it means I'm going to be looking for explicit moments of authorization. Moments like, whoever sheds the blood of man shall his, by, by man shall his blood be shed. Or, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Or, go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing and teachings. Or, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. I'm looking for those kinds of explicit authorizations. And insofar as we're looking for explicit authorizations, we also want to pay close attention to our covenantal location in the Bible storyline. Is this an authorization that's given to all humanity? That's what the covenant's given to Adam and Noah. Is this an authorization given only to Israel or to the king of Israel? That's what the commands to keep the temple holy or go into the land. You know, recalling the Crusades, I don't think I need to tell you how often those Mosaic commissions and commands have been misused to the end of grave injustice by Christians. And of course, it's not just authorizations, commands, it's promises. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Is that a promise given to America? It's not. Or are, there, are the authorizations we're looking at located in the era of the new covenant given to the church? But again, whatever you bind on earth will be in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So for this reason, let me throw out something that might be a little shocking to you. I actually don't think any of the laws given in the Old Covenant apply to people living today. Not one. Not even the law against murder. At least not directly in their Sinaitic form. Just like the Chinese law against murder doesn't apply directly to me because I'm not a citizen of China. <clears throat> the Old Testament law was given to Israel. Now, insofar as Old Testament laws are a particular instantiation of God's eternal moral law, or if you want natural law, or if you want matters of general equity, or if you want Timon, Junius's, Junius's, however you say it, human law, then yes, of course it binds us. Different ways of kind of getting at the same thing. But again, not in its directly Sinaitic form. America is not ancient Israel. Instead, I like Brian Rosner's way of treating Old Testament law in the category of wisdom. The year of Jubilee teaches us it's wise we don't to not want a permanent underclass. Laws of parapets on the roof tell us it's wise to prevent injury, and we should do that. So bottom line, in my investigation of how the state has been authorized, I'm going to look at Genesis 9, 
how appeals how God appeals to the nations and the prophets, the foreign nations, certainly New Testament statements like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And I'm going to view such matters as directly binding, but I'm also going to know I'm going to get a ton of wisdom from the law given to Israel for what a government should do. Proverbs 29.4, by justice the king builds up the land. 1 Kings 3.28, people were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice. Okay, So I think these are some of the things that we need to keep in mind. So when we're talking about religious authority, soul and body, as, as Timon was just talking about, I'm going to keep asking the question, okay, fine, yes, religious interest, but has the state been authorized to enforce that? Blasphemy laws or whatever, and that's, that's where, where I think we're going to diverge in our understanding. And a lot of that, again, roots in my biblical method. To switch gears slightly, let me conclude with seven points of what I believe a Protestant political theology should look like. It should begin with the church and baptism. We are new covenant, members of the new covenant. Our politics begins with Jesus is Lord. Number two, it's going to separate national and church identity, a huge reason why I'm not for establishmentarianism, and I'm not for Christian nationalism in any form. Number three, I think God has given the power of the sword. How is he authorized the state? Well, he's given it the power of the sword. How does he authorize the church? Give it the power of the keys. And I do think he tends for them to work separately, but in the ideal sense, don't tell us our friends in China or Iran, they have no hope of this. Frankly, we have no hope of this today. But in the ideal sense, they are working separately but cooperatively toward the greater end of worship. And of course, too often they fail miserably in their jobs. To put it another way, I think the state has been given a limited jurisdiction of being a platform builder on which the plan of redemption can occur. And the church has been given a sign maker to the hang the, sign, the, hang the signs of the who and the what of the gospel, write confessions, write confessors. Number four, a little bit more on both of those in terms of the question of justice, I think the Bible assigns the state with enforcing justice. By justice, the king builds up the land. But it is a narrow protectionist version of justice. It's limited in its jurisdiction. While it assigns the church the job of declaring a broad perfectionist version of justice. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Number five, it builds a doctrine of religious freedom, not on the neutral terms of the free conscience, publicly accessible terms of the free conscience, but on the matter of what God has or has not authorized the church and the state to do. I don't think he's authorized us to prosecute crimes against God, i.e. blasphemy. Just, it's just we don't have the authority to do that. It's never given. Number six, a Protestant political theology calls for Christians to enter the public square as principled pragmatists. Do whatever you can to win the argument in a principled way, but with limited expectations. If you were listening closely to Andrew, he basically said that, principled pragmatists. Number seven, I think it sets all of these things not inside of a doctrine of the kingdoms, but a doctrine of two ages, which will help you and your members figure out how to how much emphasis to give to the sword versus the mission of the church. It divides our lives into two ages, the age of creation and the age of redemption, both of which contain soul and body, as, as Timon rightly said. The temporary and the eternal involve both. And it establishes the family and the state to govern one age and the church and its elders to govern the others. And these ages run simultaneously and involve my whole person, inside and outside, even though different institutions have different jurisdictions. But I'm not going to necessarily divide along inside-outside lines. I will say everything in the temporal should serve the eternal because the eternal is always ultimate. And ultimately what we're going to get in the conclusion of this, I think, is a Protestant political theology that in some ways approximates classical liberalism as we have known it. We are all created us in his image. He has given us dominion. The, we are therefore equals, right? 
And for these these reasons, I'm willing to say, I think the Bible backs up John Locke when he said that Adam and Eve possess an executive authority over themselves and everything in their dominion. Or that Jefferson's phrase, the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, is a reasonable interpretation of these biblical truths. Uh, But I think what we need to do these days is a better job of not just trying to baptize classical liberalism into Christian garb. I think we need to just look at the Bible and say, what does it say? In a way that works in America, in a way that works in China, in Iran, and Saudi Arabia. You know, this century, last century, next century. I think, again, what we're going to find is you're going to see a number of liberal values are there. So there is going to be an approximation. But when we do our political theology, that's the method that I began with that we want to begin with. That's what I got. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lehman. Uh, we'll move on to Dr. Littlejohn for the last constructive statement, and then we'll move into uh, negative statements from there. All right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, none of the other guys have made it under eight minutes yet. I'll see if I can maybe earn that distinction. It would be it would be a first for me to be the shortest, but we'll see. So uh, a Protestant political theology, I would say, properly begins with a two kingdoms distinction, though not the two kingdoms distinction that Timon was critiquing the, the, the misunderstood two kingdoms distinction, it has to be the right kind of two kingdoms distinction, which is better understood as uh, two governments, really, is a better translation of the language. Right? Two kingdoms connotes this idea of two different spaces, and then, and then you start to spatialize your political theology between these institutions. The two governments, these are two ways in which Christ governs the world. So Christ rules over, the two governments are Christ's two governments. He rules over the whole world. He has all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, but he rules over the world in two ways. Uh, f- first, he uh, there are a number of ways in which we, we could talk about this, but I think one helpful way is that he governs men in their vertical relation, the way they relate to God, and he governs men in their horizontal relations, the way they relate to one another. Okay, And these are sometimes parsed as spiritual and temporal um, Eternal, uh, eternal and temporal, uh, a number of different number of different terms, or redemptive and creationary, etc. But vertical and horizontal is how I would talk about it. So the first of these, Christ's vertical or spiritual government, is direct and supernatural, because nature is useless here. Nature cannot help us uh, help fallen man at the very least. Help, nature cannot help fallen man have access to communion with God. It cannot reconcile him to God. So, uh, Christ governs directly, supernaturally, uh, giving his righteousness to the soul, although he uses, he, he uses outward uh, instruments to some extent in that, such as the sacraments. The second, uh, his temporal government works with nature, restoring and renewing it. Accordingly, it makes use of the structures that are given in nature, inclu- including political structures, Okay, so Christ's temporal government makes use of the of the, the physical and social structures of the natural world, including and especially political order. But it reorders political authority toward its proper good. Right, uh, God is trying to restore men's horizontal relations. Our horizontal relations are out of whack because our vertical relations are out of whack. So, in restoring political order to its proper task of managing man's horizontal relations, it does so in in light of the restoration of the proper vertical relation. Now, this latter, then, is the domain of politics in its broadest sense, all right? The very broadest sense, this temporal kingdom of politics, we could say includes 
It includes family, market, the visible church, and then it also includes politics in its narrower sense, that the, the powers of the state as we normally think of them. Each of these spheres we can speak of as having a kind of provisional autonomy. Okay, There are things that belong first and foremost to the, the family to do, first and foremost to the, the, the church to do, uh, first and foremost to the market to do. And yet, within this political temporal order, the political authority has a supervising architectonic role that holds the outward and visible dimension of human life accountable to conform to justice. We've heard this term justice. What do we mean by justice? I would say uh, justice could be summed up as the natural law, uh, that the temporal authority is responsible to hold man in order, accountable to conform to the natural law. Natural law is summed up classically in the Decalogue. So politics is not concerned with the gospel per se, but it cannot be indifferent to the gospel. Rulers rule on behalf of Christ. Thus they are accountable to enforce justice as Christ defines it. And they have their own task relativized in light of his work. Okay, so this is two, two ways in which political order cannot be um, indifferent to religious order. So one is because Christ has, in Scripture, revealed more fully the contours of justice as the state is supposed to enforce it. And second, because the exaltation of Christ signals the relativization of all political order so that the state should be aware of its limited vocation in light of Christ's redemptive work. And it's precise, this is not something that's just naturally knowable, okay? The, the idea of a limited state, the idea of a domain of conscience that, that is outside of the state is not just something that is human societies naturally arrive at. It is a product of, it's precisely Christianity that has revealed this limited vocation to the state that we take for granted today. But again, the state cannot be indifferent to the gospel. Why? Well, as we said, the state is accountable to rule according to natural law, and natural law itself makes it clear that politics is religious through and through. Timon has talked about this. Man is body and soul. If we are simply trying to discern what is the good for human society, we would recognize that that good includes a soulish, a spiritual, a religious good. All societies worship. All societies, in fact, are organized around objects of worship. We see that clearly even today in our supposedly secular society. Uh, thus, all societies depend on religious foundations for the morality that informs justice. Religion also binds a people together in shared ideals and practices. Religion tends to reduce conflict among the members of a society. Religion encourages obedience by saying, these authorities are not merely human authorities, these are authorities that are authorized by God, and therefore you owe them obedience for the sake of conscience, as Paul says in Romans 13. So, for all of these reasons and more, the ruler cannot be neutral to matters of religion. Religion is clearly a public good, so a good ruler should promote religion. And the true religion is conducive to, if any religion conduces to the public good, the true religion conduces to the public best, we could say. Now, the ruler, I'm not going to come in under eight minutes. All right, I'll be quick here. Okay, so the ruler must enforce the entire Decalogue, I would say, but why not theonomy? Well, here we can return to the two kingdoms distinction. The temporal domain is the domain of prudence because it is constantly changeable. 
Natural law only gives very general principles. The Old Testament law, as Jonathan has noted, is only one contextually appropriate application of the natural law. The New Testament has something to say about the centrality of mercy and the relativization of hierarchies, but the exact implications of this New Testament revelation are a matter of historically formed wisdom. So how do we think about matters of church and state especially? Well, this is, this is the key question of this conversation. The civil magistrate cannot be indifferent, as we've said. He cannot be indifferent to matters of religion. But what this looks like may look different in different contexts. Not every virtue can be promoted by law and not every vice curtailed, as Aquinas, uh, as Aquinas famously said. Thus, prudence must dictate the extent to which the civil magistrate seeks to enforce the entire Decalogue, the first, both tables of the law. For instance, should public blasphemy be punished or will this unleash a spirit of persecution? Should religious education and church work be publicly funded or will this tend to make the clergy lazy and dependent? To what extent should religious uniformity be promoted or religious diversity tolerated or encouraged? To what extent should the magistrate listen to the clergy but without becoming dependent upon them in the way that the magistrates were dependent upon the medieval clergy? All of these questions must be answered by a historically formed, contextually attentive wisdom. However, we can say this much at least. I would say all governments ought to explicitly acknowledge the Christian God as the source of their authority. And two, all governments should enact policies that will aim to ensure that as many citizens as possible also acknowledge the truth of the Christian God. Awesome. Thanks, guys. This was super helpful introduction. And I don't know if it says anything that both are Baptist brothers were shorter, I think, in time uh, than our other friends here. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you guys, the watchers, listeners, if that means anything or not. So now we're going to move into a sort of initial negative statement. The design behind this is to give everybody uh, a substantial amount of time dedicated to them to reply to some of the things that everybody else has said. So for instance, Andrew, you're going to go first. You could reply you could choose to reply to just one person or choose to reply to things that everybody said. It's totally up to you. So this is just your dedicated time, each of you. So Andrew, I'll begin with you and then we'll go in that same order that we went in. Time in Jonathan Brad. And then after that, we'll have some time to just go back and forth before we open it up to the Q&A for everybody who's watching. So Andrew, it's up yeah, to you Yeah, great. Thanks, Jordan. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I'll take the full eight minutes or not, but um, I have the floor at least. Um, no, so thanks, guys. I, this is it, this is always intellectually enriching, even where we have our disagreements. Um, a few things that were said that I'd like to comment on. Um, first, there were some areas of of a particular agreement I had with Brad um, when he was talking about the different ways in which Christ rules. Um, I can definitely. I, I buy that paradigm to the extent that we understand Christ is ruling over his church uh, in a different way that he is ruling over uh, the nations. Uh, I, I would go to 1 Corinthians here to say that not yet all has been brought to his 
uh, or his kingdom's not here in full. Uh, and so that means his, his kingdom has to be ruling and manifesting and his rule has to be manifesting in different ways. Um, so I think at the abstract level, I would agree with Brad's presentation of, of kind of that two governments perspective. I think obviously as we would drill down on the practical applications, we would have our disagreements, which I'll get there in a little bit. Um, one way I would say a possible area of agreement is one of the ways that I read first Timothy chapter two, where we're called to pray for those who are in authority over us, that we might live quiet and godly lives. Because then if you go in the next sequence of the verse is that God desires all men to be saved. Um, I actually think there is somewhat of an, uh, of a symbiotic relationship between church and state in that verse that we can deduce where you can understand Paul saying, pray that the authorities are executing judgment in the realms and jurisdictions where they are competent to, to have uh, judgment um, and, and order. And insofar as the state is keeping itself to a limited jurisdiction where it has actual competence over, uh, this, the, the church then finds itself in a position um, to do the work of the church. Um, so one of the phrases I like to use here is, you could kind of deduce from Paul in 1 Timothy 2, Paul's arguing for uh, a small state and a large church. And so I actually would say, and, I, and this isn't this isn't uncomfortable uncomfortable for me as a Baptist, is that I think the, the state can actually unwittingly and unintentionally be playing a role in the drama of redemption uh, when the state is acting according to those authorized competencies. And I like the language of what, what Jonathan was getting about with authorization. So there's some potential areas for agreement. Um, some areas of disagreement that I would probably raise that I'm sure will be points of discussion later on um, is, and of course, brothers, Timon and Brad, you guys are great. We're on the same team. We're just, we're, we're having argument for argument's sake here. At, at, at times, I felt like their arguments were more extrapolations um, from historical events more than they are biblically rooted. Now, um, obviously, I'm not saying Luther and Calvin weren't biblical and they weren't theological. Please don't hear me say that type of thing. Um, I, I just feel as though, you know, I, I think at one point, Timon says in his first point, man is spiritual and social, so therefore government should direct man to his ultimate end. Um, I don't see a clear principle from Scripture that would draw me to that same conclusion. Um, I, I think there's some—I can understand theologically how Timon would get there. Um, I, I would disagree with that kind of theolo theological exegesis. Um, but it, it seems to be more of an extrapolation. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about in these situations is what's what's actually on the ground feasible. Um, and so one of the advantages I think that D Jonathan and I have in this discussion is I think that we have 
a political theology that can adjust to the contours of the day and age in which we are currently living. And it seems to me uh, Brad and Timon's position is a little bit more idealist. And if we can't actualize uh, what they are proposing, then it, I'm, I, I, as kind of the, the critic, am, am on the side saying, okay, then, then what then? If, if you don't have it in place right now, what do you got? Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's where there are some eschatological covenantal issues at play here, where I think that Jonathan and I's views, because they're covenantally organized, tend to conform themselves to the age in which we now find ourselves in. Uh, oh, another issue is, I mean, where I would say I have my strongest disagreement is, I think Timon says at the end, um, this would require some degree of coercion. Um, Brad said something to the effect of uh, the magistrate cannot be indifferent to God's law um, and has to recognize the one true God. Uh, a couple things to that, I would say. One is we don't have godly rulers right now. So what of that? I mean, what, what do we do with the reality we don't have godly rulers? Um, if we don't have godly rulers, is the government therefore illegitimate? Um, and I think Jonathan and I's views have an understanding of the natural law and the role of the state that can accommodate the normative reality that we're going to have pagan fallen rulers, and that's to be expected. Uh, but because I have a, a, a personally a strong doctrine of the natural law, uh, I think the natural law doesn't leave them off the hook as far as their accountability to God's law. Uh, it's it's what does the magistrate see themselves doing in the office that they're in. Another thing I would say is the establishment position seems to work uh, insofar as they're the majority. Um, I want to have a political theology that can be adaptable even if we are in the minority. Uh, and obviously the Baptist position rose out of a minority position. And so that gives us the benefit of saying, okay, well, I think we have a biblical um, public theology, but I also think we have uh, one that can adjust to the realities and contingencies of where Christians find themselves scattered throughout the globe, that we don't have to be in the majority to achieve our vision for church and state. Uh, I mean, the last thing I'll say is this. Um, I don't hear any recognition of the reality of pluralism in the establishment vision. Uh, and please hear me, pluralism is a loaded term. When I say pluralism, I'm, I'm describing the reality that in this age, it's a, it's a normative but lamentable reality that there are people who think differently than Christians. Um, and I can't change that. I don't think a magistrate's confession of the one true God is going to do very much to effectuate change at the level of regeneration, because I think that's where 
our understanding of ecclesiology and soteriology and, 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 and contradistinction from infant baptism comes into play here, which I, I love this discussion because it actually shows how, how fully orbed and logical our views on church and state are because they trace back to ecclesiology and, and, and soteriology. Um, all that to say, my last thing, I think we have to have a political theology that can respond to the reality that people don't think like us. So what do we do in having a commonwealth with people unlike us? And I think that gives the Baptist vision a realizable uh, or functional political theology more than the establishment one. Gosh, I didn't think I'd take all that time. That was longer than my introduction. So how about that? <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Walker. All right, uh, Tommen, you're up. Hey, thank you. Um, so just because he just he went re- most recently, I'll respond to, to Andrew some. And uh, some of the things I'll plug I think actually might fit better in our, our free-flowing discussion. Maybe we can pick them back up again or, or maybe not. Um, I do want to further adjudicate uh, Andrew's claim earlier on. It was kind of made in passing, but I think it's a common claim, which is that, you know, establishment simply doesn't work or it um, – the assumption is that it it deadens orthodoxy. I can't remember how you phrased it, Andrew, but something like that. It, it's, it's a um, – uh, you know, it's detrimental to true uh, spirituality, we might say, something like that. Um, I think that that needs to be further adjudicated in two ways. I don't know how it's falsifiable. I, the, the claim is used often. Um, and it's, it's usually used as a sort of, uh, historical observation is where the data is coming from. And, um, I see it in many ways, completely the opposite way, um, because I don't see, um, the context, the very, very, in the grand scheme of things, short experiment we've had with disestablishment, uh, producing anything better, in fact, far worse. Um, and that kind of dovetails with, uh, something Andrew's bringing up on rebuttal, which is, uh, the recognition of a uh, what we might we might say religious diversity might say plural, like Andrew is kind of grappling with pluralism is a has the a, a sort of imports a normative favorable view of that but it's it's you know the the diversity on the ground the fact of religious diversity um, I think another fallacy and I'm not saying Andrew uh, subscribes to this but is that there was no diversity in uh, you know certainly the early modern period or even the medieval period, it's that it was homogenous. And it's simply not the case. So I think the um, it doesn't necessarily poke a hole in the theories of, of church and state that predominated then. Um, and I'm not sure from, to take a kind of pastoral view of things, I don't know how would we would know this uh, very well, but I, but I don't think it can be ruled out as, I, what was it like for people on the ground in these, in these periods? Were they miserable? Or was it going decently well from their perspective? And then, um, and certainly, you know, maybe not materially, and that's just a, a contingency of history and technology, um, but spiritually and familiarly and uh, relationally and all these things where you see great suffering in our context now. Um, so I do think, again, I'm not, not putting this on Andrew, but I think we all uh, commit the chronological snobbery of assuming that we've come up with a more pristine theory and therefore people must be happier because there's more celebration of the fact uh, that there's disagreement and difference. And that would be one of my last points is that I don't think a, a political theory, even trying to be practical, can be predicated on division 
or be predicated on disagreement. In fact, I think political theory is supposed to be a cohesive one. Uh, find every way it's, it can to produce the, the opposite, to produce agreement, to produce a level of homogeneity, however you define it by whatever metric. Um, so that's one of the things I would push back on on a, uh, a liberal theory in the you know small L way. Um, which I would also put just just to throw something at Jonathan since I haven't yet. Um, you know, I'm the the appeal to classical liberalism is is interesting. I'm certainly not a, a proponent of classical liberalism, but even the you know the words of the Declaration, life, liberty, and happiness. Um, I think even for Jefferson have to be considered classically. Uh, life being a precondition for everything else, liberty certainly being within within law and order, and then happiness being uh, the classical sense of the word. And if you drive that to where it should go, uh, true happiness can only be found in God. And therefore, if the government is supposed to preserve and indeed pursue the happiness of the populace, it ultimately lands at the same question that both me and Brad in different ways have brought up. And Locke himself recognized this. This is why Locke, for all his uh, that the attribution of liberalism to him, still doesn't tolerate atheism, right? So this this is I, I think at some point you always end up grappling with that aspect. And this is because again, political theory is supposed to foster. Uh, not only temporal well-being, but the well-being of temporal creatures that also have a spiritual uh, existence and an eternal destiny, um, and do do justice not just to man, but to the source of the power that is to do justice over man, which is God Himself. Uh, so, justice to God is also the first order of of government, and it has to figure out what that looks like. We can move on to Doctor Lehman. I I took notes from the brothers and. Uh, I have gone through as Andrew was talking and went through my notes and highlighted some in green for like, I agree. Some in yellow, like, meh, slow down. And some in red. So let me just respond. I uh, appreciated what, uh, you go to the top here. I appreciate what T-Bond said about man as a spiritual and social beating, buying and soul. Certainly that's true. Um, and social order is a product of, of, of man. It must reflect the nature of man. I'm on all agreement, but... Or I'm going to offer a caution is just because our anthropology says this does not mean this institution or that institution is licensed to fulfill everything that would fulfill man. So don't confuse anthropology with what's been authorized or not authorized. It's going to come up again in a second. But still, that's green. Anthropology green. Yellow. Government's not a confess concession of the fall. In fact, it's it's a good you know, you have, to, you have to decide, even in a perfect society, do we drive on, drive on the right or the left side of the road? I agree with that. That said, the use of the sword, the present instantiation of government, which I believe is established in the Noahic Covenant, that is a limited thing. That is a product of the fall. The way the government works now, whoever says the blood of man, is, is from the fall. And that will pass, praise the Lord, right? Um, so kind of yes and no. Uh, government rules over body and soul. Yes, you know, it's not just did he kill somebody, you know, it's premeditated, right? But at the same time, going back to my earlier point, you know, you proceed from there to say he has an interest in soul and his eternal well-being. Yes, well, my babysitter of my children has an interest in some regard, and, you know, they're babysitting my children, soul and body. They have an interest in their eternal well-being if they're good babysitters, but that doesn't mean they're given jurisdiction, unlimited way to 
bring my children in all matters of worship and so forth, or coercive use of the sword in that case. And there's still a limitation of the jurisdiction that's been given, right? Then when you get to the religious role of the magistrate, if the magistrate is a religious interest, you said, then he has to be interested in promoting a proper legislative, I mean, I got in your words right here, proper legislative competency over these things. Well, that's where, that's where I'm like, ah, it's true, they should preserve our bodies, but that doesn't mean, because preserve our bodies and our souls together, right? A human has both. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're to lead us to the heavenly gates, whatever the phrase was that you used. Um, so that's where I'm, I'm, I'm utterly with Andrew when Andrew says, you know, it seems like you're in some ways drawing logical implications out that doesn't necessarily agree with the biblical data or frankly even with what I would say be proper theological construction of, of limited jurisdictions. Okay, jumping to Brad, some of the same things here. Green light, yellow light, red light, green, Protestant political theology. The way you describe two kingdoms, I like it. Rules over the world, but in two ways. Well, yes, good. Yellow light works with nature restoring and renewing it, including political structures. Well, I don't like the language of restoring and renewing. That to me feel like, feels like Holy Spirit language. Removal of the curse language. Maybe you mean what I mean. I'm not sure. That's why I'm giving it a yellow light. Um, green light. Each of these spheres has a provisional autonomy. Good. I like that. Uh, gospel. Uh, you don't want a government that's not concerned with the gospel, indifferent to the gospel. Rulers rule on behalf of Christ. I'm giving that a green light. And therefore, he must enforce justice as Christ defines it. Again, agree. That means he can't, in some sense, or he should not be, at least, ideally, be indifferent to religious order. I mean, I, I think that's true. Uh, he, his, his, the contours of justice he seeks are, are the contours as established in Scripture. I agree. Green light. State should be aware of its limitations in light of Christ's rule. You're sounding like your 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 professor O'Donovan there. I mean, that's true. Um, you would have no authority if it were not given to you above, says Jesus to Pilate. All right. Uh, Christianity has revealed its limited vocation, the government's limited vocation, but it can't be indifferent to the gospel. Again, green light. But where I quickly turn to red is then what you seem to assume from there, which is you said that good that it's working for includes a soul, I think you said soul hyphen ish good. And uh, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean the state has the power of the sword to enforce religion, organized religion, let's say, organized religion, particular doctrines. Just tell me where that's where that's in the Bible, not in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, uh, you say societies are organized around objects of worship. That's true. It's only Christianity that says otherwise. When Jesus says, "Render to Caesar what Caesar's, and to God what's God," it's only. A Protestant political theology that's going to say to the you know the Hillary Clintons and the and the uh, uh, you know, whomevers, no, we we're not going to enforce your worship or any worship. We we can't do that. We're not competent to do that. We're not authorized to do that. We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't do that. So it's only Christianity, Protestant Christianity, that offers an off ramp to the organizing of society around an object of worship. It's just not authorized. It's true that religion binds a nation together. It makes them, again, that's all true. 
That doesn't mean we're authorized to do that. Uh, another red light, rulers must inform the entire Decalogue. I, I just don't see that in the Bible. I don't see that as authorized. Even if you want to make it a logical implication, that's what you're doing. Um, so should public blasphemy laws be punished? No. Should church work be funded? No. Um, should unif the religious uniformity be tolerated or discouraged? Uh, or, or should religious maybe lack of uniformity be tolerated? Oh, I, I think it has to be tolerated. Uh, we don't have the competency, the Holy Spirit power to do otherwise, and we don't have the authority to do otherwise. And this is this is where I think Andrew and my uh, concept of a, a Baptist rendering of how the covenants in the Bible are put together and are, are perhaps stronger, not perhaps, are stronger views of discontinuity between Old and New Covenant are certainly germane in this conversation. So we have, Andrew and I have, very strong understanding of the, the New Covenant coming and saying, law cannot enforce true religion. That's why Israel was exiled. They couldn't enforce it. Therefore, I'm putting you all to death. I'm casting you out of the land. A new covenant was needed, one in which the Spirit comes and indwells our hearts and enables us to keep the law. But who administers that new covenant? It's not the state. It's the church. And so in that sense, the, the, the obligations given to the state go back to the common covenant given through Noah, Genesis 9, right? And that, that's not changed. So when Oliver O'Donovan says that the, the state assumes a peripheralized role with the coming of Christ, that's both true, I would say. That's both true and not true. It's true relative to Israel. It's not true with respect to the nations and with respect to the authority given through the Noahic covenant, right? So the authority given there and meditated on in different ways, as I described before, by the rest of Scripture— uh, tells us what the state can and can't do. And, and at no point do we see the kings of the nations being told they can wield a sword for purposes of worship, for the purposes of the first table of the law. So that's, that's I love your anthropology. I agree with the political nature of everything we do, including the church. We're in a book called Political Church. Uh, still, I want to I come in with a stronger view of the discontinuity between Old and New Covenant, and therefore, what we expect the state to be competent to do and authorized to do. All right, we'll transition to Dr. Littlejohn, and then we'll move into uh, a little bit more of a free-flowing discussion. All right, well, thank you. So I noticed there seems to be a consensus around the proposition, uh, as I voiced it, um, that you know government cannot be indifferent to religion. Um, you know, Jonathan agreed with that. Uh, Andrew said at various points, you know, basically it would be. It would indeed be nice. Uh, the ideal, um, I, I can't remember if that was, maybe Jonathan said the ideal. Yeah, the ideal is where power of the sword and power of the keys work together. Um, and Andrew made some similar remarks in which basically, you know, the government, as a Christian, I want to see the government, um, you know, the government needs to, wants to be in a society where there, there's the right religion. Okay, fine. So the question is, this is all, we all kind of agree, that would be nice. What Timon, I think, is not only would it be nice, but God uh, empowers the government to do that which would, in fact, be nice. Uh, and then Andrew and Jonathan, I detect at least a strong difference in emphasis. I don't know if they actually disagree. But what I hear Andrew saying is that would be nice, but uh, sadly, it just doesn't work. It's almost like if you could prove to me, his focus was almost entirely on pragmatic arguments. If you could prove to me that establishment worked, okay, I'd be on board. 
Uh, he might not actually say that, but that's the main emphasis he had. So I would just agree with what Tymon said about the, you know, the, the, if this is an empirical historical argument, we've got 15 centuries of pretty much universal establishment. Some places it went really well, some places it didn't go so well. Uh, we have disestablishment, say Christian churches under Islam, usually didn't go very well. And then we have a couple centuries in the U.S. and less than two centuries in, in the rest of the world of disestablishment. And most, for the most part, it doesn't seem to be going well. Um, trying to draw universal conclusions about what goes better, what doesn't, uh, would be you know, is way beyond the scope of what we can do here. But just initial survey, establishment seems to have a pretty good track record relative disestablishment. Now, Jonathan's angle is different, however. It's kind of categorical. Um, it's saying uh, it would be nice if um, it almost like it could be it would be nice if government could pr could promote the religious context uh, that conduces to human flourishing, but it just can't. God will not allow it. God refuses to allow government to do that thing that would be nice to do. Uh, this is interesting. He agreed with Timon's anthropology. I, mean, I basically heard him saying, "Yes, this is true as an anthropological point that it's best when body and soul are kind of harmonized." in pursuit of the same good. But sadly, God has not authorized institutions that fit that anthropology. Now, prima facie, this is, seems you like... Can remove, you, can remove, you can remove sadly. I would never say okay. sadly. All right. What God, what God does is not yeah, sadly. Yeah, I, I understand. But it is, no. I would say, um, part of this then is a natural law argument. And at least Andrew concurred. He said he's a natural law theorist. I don't know if you would say similarly, Jonathan. But if we approach this as a natural law argument then indeed our starting point would be to say that which God has put as the sort of the, has put into nature as nature's good, uh, we can generally assume that he has authorized human beings to create institutions conducive to that good, that, that match that. So if Timon's point about anthropology is correct, the natural law theorist would say that anthropology does indeed generate a political theology, at least unless God explicitly says otherwise. So we agree that all institutions have to be authorized by God. The question is, how do we know about such authorization? And I'm grateful to you here because I'm often teaching my students about um, uh, talking about how the regulative principle of worship sometimes spills over into a kind of regulative principle of life. And sometimes they're sort of skeptical. They think I'm just kind of inventing a boogeyman. And I can now say, no, they, I'm not inventing a boogeyman. Jonathan Lehman has declared the regulative principle of life here. Um, yes. I'm the boogeyman. Hey, Jonathan's the boogeyman. So uh, basically what I hear you saying is not only must God authorize it, but God must say somewhere specifically in Scripture that he authorizes something. Otherwise, it's not authorized. Now, I know you wouldn't actually take that to the kind of reductio ad absurdum that it can lead to, right? Um, Hooker deals with this with Cartwright uh, and says basically, so, you're, so effectively you're saying I can't even bend down to pick up a straw without biblical scriptural authorization. Uh, you know, someone, everyone's going to draw a line somewhere before that reductio. But I think the appropriate place to draw the line is to say um, God authorizes political institutions to carry out the dominion mandate effectively, and the dominion mandate is very, very broad. So now we do. This is all the level of kind of philosophy and theology, and, you know, you're saying you guys aren't being very biblical. I would say we are being biblical because – when Scripture comes to talk about what this looks like in practice, what does it give us? It gives us the Mosaic Law. And yes, I agree with everything you said about the Mosaic Law is not binding as such, but it's been traditionally the standard on Protestant understanding that the Decalogue is the summation 
of the natural law. Um, it, it's kind of a convenient, it, you know, basically it sums up all the, the key points of natural law are there in the Decalogue. And so you said, you know, Decalogue, even the Decalogue is not binding as such, but it is binding as the general equity of natural law. Uh, it's by, You said it's, it's, um, it functions as wisdom. Okay, let's use that. Let's say the Old Testament law and everything in there just functions as wisdom. Well, the consensus, the consistent testimony of that wisdom is God wants his rulers to enforce right worship. God wants his rulers to enforce right worship. God wants his rulers to enforce right worship. It's there in the Mosaic law. It's there in the Kings and Chronicles, all the good kings, you know, what they do. They got they, they put in right worship and got rid of the, the idols. All the bad kings, what did they do? They put in idols. So when we come to the New Testament, at least Everything we've got so far, natural law and Old Testament, is telling us it looks like right worship is indeed one of the things God wants government to do. So then it's at that point I would say, since Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law but fulfill it, and since there's a this isn't in the Bible, but it's, a, I think, a dictum that sums up Scripture well, um, grace does not destroy nature but perfects it, then I would say the assumption is when we come to the New Testament, it's not going to contradict that natural law and Old Testament law principle. Um, and so therefore, where you say we need explicit New Testament authorization for this, I would say, no, we need explicit New Testament disauthorization. Um, if the New Testament said, oh, by the way, no more concern for right worship, then okay, you win. But it doesn't. And, and, and Romans 13, in fact, says they are not only to punish what is evil, but approve what is good. And what is the highest good Religion. So if the ruler is responsible to approve and promote the good, I would say they are responsible to approve and promote religion. Now, I'm not sure where I'm at. Do I have any time left? That's basically all your time. Right. Yeah. You're kind of right at the slot. So okay. if, if you want to give one um, sentence... I'll just, I mean, I'll just say in response to Andrew's it. response, um, you know, he says, this is a question of what's feasible. He says we're that time and I are being idealists, and his view is able to adapt to being in the minority. Everything I was saying is, and time was saying, we are giving an ideal, but our system does say all of this has to be mediated through prudence. What can in fact be done? And I outlined a bunch of prudential questions. So I, I don't think that their view is um, the only one that's able to make sense of pragmatic considerations. In fact, I would say, he says, what do you do when you're a minority? I say, we have an answer for what to do in your minority. But what do you do when you're in the majority? I don't think Baptist political theology has an answer. Awesome. Well, this has been super interesting so far. So at this point, uh, we've got 45 minutes left. So I do want to make sure that there is time at the end for the audience questions. I, we're already getting some of those to come through. I'm take, taking track of those. So if you're putting them in now, I'm keeping track. Uh, but I do want to give you guys just some space to talk through what you guys have said so far to each other. Um, so let's shoot for 20 to 30 minutes-ish. Of time, if we if we've got everything clear, we're on the clear. We'll go ahead and go to the audience questions at that point. So I'll let you guys go ahead and start, Jonathan. It looks like you have something to say, so I'll let you go ahead and kick us I, off. I, I don't know how my face showed that, but I, I it's true. You read my face correctly. Three things. I just jotted these down in response to your conversation just now, uh, uh, Brad. I, I do think there are different jobs that God has given church and state. You agree with that? They are in some sense coordinate, but. There's a difference between our common grace provision and our special grace provision, right? So that, that's where I think the idea of a platform is useful. i got to learn to read, the, read before I can learn to read the Bible. So the teacher teaches me to read. 
You know, a preacher teaches me to read the Bible in a, in, in a sense, right? And so, yeah, I do think the state is oriented, ultimately, it should be oriented towards uh, our eternal good, but it has a very limited jurisdiction in doing that. It's, it's to teach us to read. So, you know, if, I, if I'm looking, let me, let me make this super practical. You know, I'll tell you who to vote for. Don't vote for the candidate who thinks he can offer redemption. Vote for the government that thinks its work is a prerequisite of redemption. It builds a street so you can drive the church. It protects the womb so you can live and hear the gospel. It insists on fair lending and housing practices so you can own a, phone, own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. It works for education so you can teach your children the Bible. It protects marriage and the family so that husbands and wives can model Christ's love for the church. It polices the streets so that you're free to assemble as churches unmolested and make an honest living so you can give money to the work of God. I think I'm getting that actually from Acts 17 and and 1 Timothy 2, right? We're to pray for those in government in high authority, in high positions, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. That's the goal, peaceful and quiet, platform, peaceful and quiet lives. Because why? God wants all men to come to redemption. Now, the government's God, job is not redemption. It's to provide a platform for it. You then say, well, where does the deauthorization occur? Well, I think it does occur. Render to Caesar, what is Caesar, and what is God, what is God? So that doesn't mean Caesar is outside of God's domain. You got you don't got two separate spheres. You got one big sphere, God's things, and inside of that sphere is Caesar's things. But there, in the context of, of ancient Rome, right, the, the government is delimited, and this is where I think Donovan is right that there is a peripheralization that occurs, even though yes, he's an Anglican. I don't fully understand that. Um, so. You said it says over and go over. Government is to enforce right worship, enforce right worship, enforce right worship. That stops. That absolutely stops because enforcing right worship is then given to the church. It's the church that binds and loose on earth, which bound and loose in heaven, not the government. They do not enforce right worship. Neither no Noahic covenant or the Mane among the nations, nor with that division of church and state we get with the coming of the new covenant. That does stop. It is deauthorized. And as for the good that the Romans 13 authority is enforcing, it is not an expansive perfectionist good. Otherwise, you would literally have to legislate all good. What would be the limiting factor if it's not all good? We all put some limitations on the good that the government is to enforce. What is the limitation? I think it's a limitation in keeping with the authorizations that have been given through the Noahic Covenant that we can reflect on, then, uh, in wisdom, but, but finally uh, is in a very limited, tempered jurisdiction. So I'm not saying sadly, I, that's why I wanted to throw in the sadly. The sadly, no, sadly, God, we wish government could do it, but sadly, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I would say, he's, well, they're teaching us to read. That's great. I need to learn to read. They're giving us clean air. I need clean air. That's wonderful, right? So that the church can get on and do, what, do its work. Romans, Genesis 9 comes before Genesis, Genesis 12 and the call to Abraham for a reason. The platform has to come before. The peace, the order, the security has to come before the call of redemption through the line of Abraham. Yes, you're right. Andrew was emphasizing the historical. I was emphasizing the, the biblical. I think they're complementary arguments. I think they work together. If, if I can jump in one thing. Um, uh, Brad said um, government cannot be indifferent to religion. I, I, I want to engage that a little bit. Um, I think it can be neutral on religions in the commonwealth as far as their equal protection under the law. But we shouldn't read government being neutral towards various religions as being therefore neutral on issues of morality. 
Um, and then when we get to the Ten Commandments, I, I agree with Brad uh, on the Reformers' reading of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I think it's an excellent heuristic for the natural law. Uh, I, th- I think all aspects of the Ten Commandments um, are binding. Jonathan, close your ears. I'm not sure if that offends you as, a ba- as, as your new covenant argument. As a natural lawyer, I'm, I'm on board with saying the stipulations of the Ten Commandments are still binding. I'm cool with that. The question is, uh, if they're still binding, are they all enforceable in the same way in their bindingness? And that's where, I mean, the typical division, you know, Williams does this. Uh, the first four commandments are still binding by natural law. Uh, I don't think the state has either the biblical mandate, uh, the jurisdiction uh, to enforce it. But then I also think just the competency. Um, and th- this is, I mean, this this is a historical argument. And, and your all's pushback to me is is rightly heard because I don't want to engage in chronological snobbery. I, I fully agree. That's a good pushback. But um, at the same time, it seems to me we should be able to say religious power in the hands of political officers. I just, I mean, I just don't know examples replete through history where that, that actually has been a good thing. King Edward the Sixth. So and so, this is where like I'm open to hearing some historical arguments for this. Um, but then when you say you know anti uh, anti establishment has gone poorly uh, in American context, I mean the pushback to that is to say what we're still actually more religious than other nations, and so that's the Tocquevillian argument that somehow institutions of civil society delinked from government have bred a degree of vibrancy that hasn't been the case with historical Christendom. Can I just chime in on that? Well, I want to push back on the Tocqueville comment, but I'll take, I'll put a pin in it. Then you go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Time in. I'll just, I'll just do that. Then I'll follow up after you. I mean, the, the Tocqueville comment, it's very interesting as Tocqueville uh, rightly recognizes the primary influence on the American ethos. However, you want to define that is is New England Puritanism. And what Tocqueville is observing even then is the product of what I would say is one of the few, if not the only Protestant society in the 17th century or perhaps ever that gets a chance to really work this out, what I'm talking about. And so, Andrew, all you're attesting to is the the lasting and beautifully lasting effect of actually a very short-lived project and what it was able to accomplish and the reverberations of that is really what produced what Tocqueville got to observe on multiple levels, not just the the communal aspect um, and, you know, we don't want to get too barbarian about it with with this sort of, uh, you know, capitalist uh, kind of slant on Puritanism, but that's that's what uh, he's getting to see And and even he to some extent, recognizes it as much as a, a Frenchman can. I'm sorry, Timon, you're saying what he got to see was, just to clarify, a product of establishmentarianism in Congregationalist Massachusetts and so forth. You're saying that? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, he, he recognizes... He yeah, says, I mean, he's coming in, like, right after it's been disestablished, right? I mean, yeah. so... Yeah. I'm just, I'm just putting... I mean, that's obviously not all Tocqueville said yeah. or saw... I'm just saying on that point Andrew brought up, it just made me think, actually, I think that one, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to 
accosted or captured for my my favor here. Did he say? Did he say that? Did he say it was a consequence of those? It's been so long since I read it. Did he say it was a consequence of those? Yeah, Tocqueville at multiple points recognizes the influence of Puritanism and says it's the the thing that's that's produced much of uh, what America is. The established church. Yeah. I'm, I'm Puritanism. Yeah, Puritanism just, without an established church isn't Puritanism, you know. Yeah, they're they're establishmentarians. That's all I'm I'm drawing in. It's just saying some of what was observed, and even Tocqueville knows it's attributable to this particular group that came first. Part of that that story, part of the production there that he's getting to see, is because of establishment. That's what I'm saying. That's what produces the cohesion. That's what produces the community and all these things. That's that's my argument. At least that's what so, I'm saying. What I wanted I to say, wanna, if, oh, if I can, go ahead. No, Brad, go ahead. Real quick. Anyway, what I wanted to say to Andrew on this is, I mean, I really am a a, a pragmatist on this, uh, and um, I mean, there's a really interesting exchange. There's an interesting passage toward the end of Wealth of Nations where Adam Smith rehearses David Hume's argument for establishment and then gives his own counter argument, they, and it's and it's an empirical argument both ways, uh, and you know. Hume's, Hume's argument is basically uh, if you allow kind of a free religious marketplace, um, the kind of the, – that uh, the, the worst quality tends to rise to the top. That the, the, is to say the, the kind of the charlatans who are willing to be – you know, tickle the people's ears and tell them what they want to hear or have kind of you know, crazy new ideas or whatever are going to tend to attract followers at the expense of the more sober, learned clergy. Um, and then – Smith gives the kind of counter-argument, yeah, but the problem is the sober, learned clergy in an established church are also kind of the fat, lazy clergy, uh, and therefore um, we really – free religious competition is actually going to keep them on their toes. They're going to have to actually give good teaching if they're going to keep people. And I think in a way the American experiment has borne out both. Um, it, it is true that religion has remained quite vigorous in America well and you know until quite recently uh, and you could say that's the fact that the baptists and the methodists and the presbyterians and, and everybody have to compete at the same time you look at what happened with in the mid 19th century when disestablishment first started and you do have the craziest sorts um the rise kind of attracting the most followers and the mo the, the churches that insist most on a well-educated clergy a strong liturgy whatever they lose market share very rapidly. And so what you have is vigorous religion in America, but kind of unhinged religion sometimes. So in a way, they're both right. And I think it's kind of parallel to the argument a bit about, um, you know, the arguments against establishment are kind of like the arguments against welfare. It's like, well, you don't want to create dependency, you know, like, yes, we want to help these people out, but we don't want to create dependency. So how do you help them out without making them dependent on the government? How does the government encourage the church without making the church lazy and dependent on government? And I think, you know, the the sloppy kind of libertarian answer is all forms of welfare obviously create dependency, just don't even try. Um, and that's just not – and so let's just leave them to the mercy of the market. I don't think that's correct morally or empirically. I think the answer is you have to have a very carefully designed welfare system so that you encourage you, – you help without – hurting, right? And I would say similarly, you need a carefully designed establishment system. And I'm I'm open to the empirical arguments, but I think the point is, the point is if you're framing it that way, you're still granting the premise, and I think this is important. Um you can say the government 
any good government's job is to try is to want the is to try, that's why I said I said um, my two propositions it needs to acknowledge God as the source of its authority and two it needs to try to make the church flourish as much as it can now it may be that it figures out that the best way to make the church flourish is a relatively hands off approach but still um, that's accepting the prior given that um, promoting the church is part of its responsibility. So I'd like to pose a question to you all, and it's in no way a, a, a gotcha. I, I genuinely am always curious as far as like if you were able to formulate your ideal church state arrangement, do you have a, a model in mind that you would want to install to see perpetuated? I mean, I think Timon's going to say Puritan New England, um, but I'm. <laughs> I mean, I would probably say. Uh, I mean, I would resist the whole idea of ideal model, given everything I said about prudence and historical contingency and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, I think 19th century Britain is a pretty good uh, model, and of course, 19th century is a broad period. And there's the 1832. You know, there's um, there's the this question: Do we mean pre 1832 Britain with the what Catholics could do then or after? But um, Setting that aside, you have an established church you have, that is that where formally pr- recognized, promoted, supported by the state, and yet broad toleration for dissenting Protestant groups, and then some increasing toleration for for Roman Catholics um, and and Jews and so on. So there's religious liberty and establishment coexisting, and an extremely, I mean, it's an extremely religious society. I would say it's it, it's. Uh, Victorian England is probably is is a more religious society than um, than America at, in twentieth century America certainly. So sends missions all over the world to help stop the slave trade. It seems to be working pretty well. And again, it's a combination of uh, both hands on establishment and hands off toleration. See, I, I, I'm a little reluctant to step in here because I'm not an historian, and I will quickly show my ignorance. A little bit that I know, though. Yeah, I'm, I, I am. I am reading history pretty differently in terms of the goodness that 19th century Britain would have been elements of, as well as early American. I wouldn't see it so much as a property of establishment. I would see it more as a property of first great awakening conversionism, right? And the fact that people were, by God's grace, being born again and had new covenant law and dwelling hearts. I think that dramatically impacted. The early American Republic, I think, to the extent there was good in Britain, you know, and, and Spurgeon gets shows up and he's looking around London. It's a pretty, you know, nasty place. But to the extent that there is good going on, I, I do think it's a consequence of people being born again. I don't want to instrumentalize, as Andrea said, being born again, and, and the goal of that for for temporal purposes. Nonetheless, I think there is a crater. There is an impact, as Andrew said. Uh, and when I compare that, say, with continental Europe, which did have an established religion, uh, which you know had everything you're asking for, but who never had a first great awakening or a second great any awakening, who everybody was a Christian, quote unquote, right, baptized in the churches, but did not have, so far as I can tell, born again hearts. Christian was never Europe was never Christianized genuinely. Much of continental Europe wasn't, at least. 
uh, it's it's not to claim that they have prospered, that they have done well, and it, it resulted in late 19th century and early 20th century everything we know in in, in Europe. Um, even even that wonderful picture of you know our, our Christian Prime Minister Kuiper. Well, what 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 did Amsterdam look like 20, 30 years later? Right? Christians do not convert by the sword. Muslims can. I can make you a good Muslim with the sword. I can't make you a good Christian with the sword. We cannot do that. Charlemagne could not do that, even though he quote unquote Christianized Germania overnight. Uh, but we have a theology that says that's impossible. So it's not so insofar as Puritanism benefited the early American colonies and uh, early American Republic and Republic, I, I guess I'd be inclined to say it's not clear to me that it was the establishment element of Puritanism so much as it was the conversionist elements and uh, true religion that was part and parcel of Puritanism. Can I, mean, I just ask one question? Oh, sorry, Timon, go ahead. No, go ahead, Brad, if you get a question. Well, anyway, I don't have a question. I, I've said probably more than my share, but just, yes, I completely agree. You don't Christianize by the sword. That's not um, not what I'm talking about. Uh, and that's why I camp out on that Romans 13, um, punishing what is evil and approving what is good. Let's talk about what, what that approving what is good part looks like. And I, just, I would just want, as a thought experiment, to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying. How does the government encourage the church? Well, by encouraging education, teaching people to read so they can read the Bible. And, and that was indeed a huge part of Protestant reformers said, we need to teach people to read so they can read the Bible. Yeah. Okay, so then I would just go a step further and say, can they not merely encourage people to read so they can read the Bible, but say, oh, we should sponsor a Bible translation? I mean, we don't need the civil authorities to do that now, but they did need that in the 16th, 17th century, right? Sponsor Bible translation. Uh, let's print Bibles. Let's make sure there's a lot of Bibles out there. Every church has a Bible. Uh, that would be ways in which the government is actively encouraging but not converting by the sword. The Apocrypha? And, and yeah. I would say to, to that, I mean, there, there are um, examples I was aware of when I went to college in Southwest Missouri. Um, there was, and it, this, this fits the Baptist model perfectly. Um, I forget what it was called, but on like Tuesday afternoons, there was a, there was a time uh, set aside in the public schools in Bolivar, Missouri, where for like an hour and a half time period, uh, you could actually go during the day and receive religious instruction of your preferred faith. And so I remember I, I used to serve in this in college. You had people, you had, you had elementary kids come to this ministry and we would do like Bible lessons. Bus would drop them off, bus would pick them up, then they'd go back to school. Um, but that was being done I mean, it was, a very, it was a very Christian area, but hypothetically, if there was a synagogue, uh, Jewish students in Bolivar, Missouri would have had the liberty to go to synagogue during that time as well. So, I mean, I, I think we might actually all have a lot of common ground on the role of religion in society, for sure, uh, and, the, and the public good of religion. I think, I think our disagreements come down to the granular dispensations of government qua government getting involved in religion. Yeah, I think I think there might that might be true, Andrew is the the conciliarist in the group bringing us together. I'll I'll try to drive us back apart a little bit and then we can move <laughs> on. But um 
part of to to Jonathan's point and Brad, their their kind of discussion they were having. I mean, on balance, because I I think uh, the the theology in this respect that we all share uh, soteriology to some extent, uh, at least, tells us that also, uh, in my opinion, you could have. Um, as Brad said, neither one of us are offering for coerced conversions. I'm, ask, I, I'm arguing for coercive conditions that are conducive to conversions, but not a, a forced conversion. Those are different things. So but that, even if you lined up... Coercive... Say your phrase. That was a useful phrase. I just want to get that right. Yeah. Coercive, coercive conditions that are conducive to conversion. And I'll come, I'll come back to it in a second, or you can remind me if I forget. Um... But what I want to say is I don't I don't have any more confidence in the conversions of the Great Awakening than I do the, the Christians of whatever establishment country you want to pick, whether it's Charlemagne, who used to sleep with the city of God under his pillow, by the way. So I have a lot of confidence in, in what's going on there. But the I don't have, on principle I have no reason to suspect any more sincerity of one over the other. And because I, I don't have that revivalist kind of spirit in me where the energy and the spontaneity and the the lack of structure and hierarchy is what is providing confidence for what's coming out, I, I have no reason theologically to assume one is better than the other. So that leads us to this has to be, in, in my view, uh, something determined on principle, come what may. Just as the church has to fulfill, Jonathan, I know I've said this to you before, just as the church has to fulfill the marks of the church, come what may, leave the rest of the spirit, I think there is, a, is an aspect of our theology, of politics, of political and, and social order, controlling for what Brad's brought up multiple times of prudence and concessions made to context, that's what a good ruler does, ultimately the pr- preservation of his rule and the commonwealth itself is is paramount, but I think there there has to be a, a core to any good Protestant political theology that says, "Come what may, this is this is what's best." And I w- would agree with Brad on this. The, the scripture, even if we're not we're not reading it as theonomist, but when you read Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen, that's a great political theology text, in my opinion. Who does the king get the law from? To copy it down from the church. The church gives him the law. He copies it down. He promulgates it and promotes it. So that's not meant to be so wooden and kind of mechanical or direct. The point is there is going to be, and this is my last point, my realist point, my, my practical point. All I think, uh, to the extent me and Brad are, are overlapping and saying similar things, I think it's the most realist position on political theology there is, because I think it's always what is everywhere going on, and any alternative model, any alternative theory has no basis in reality. So what I mean by that is, the, the government is always receiving the power, the temporal power, the sword is always receiving its moral data from outside of itself that it then promulgates and enforces for the purpose of producing a particular good in society, forming society very actively into what it should be that's supposed to be a reflection of the moral convictions that are already held by the people. And it goes round and round. This is the, the same rationale in the 19th century that courts would uphold blasphemy laws. It's not, they're not weighing in on whether it's true that Jesus Christ uh, raised from the dead or, or is God's son. What they're saying is the majority of the people think this. It's incredibly destabilizing for someone to run around drunkenly saying that's false. We've got to suppress this. It's not good for social order. And we do the same thing today with all of our laws. Um, and I think, I think all of us intuitively to some extent can recognize that. So that, that's all that to say is 
I'm, I'm, our, our laws today also don't force conversions. No, none of us have a gun pointed to our head to uh, accept the latest uh, metaphysical and moral overhaul, the dogmatism coming out of uh, the current regime on the, the, the biggest thing, the next thing. But the coercive conditions are very strong and very well orchestrated. And so my, my, as I say often, my black pill take is the structure of our regime is absolutely fine problem with conservatives and Christians generally is arguing about the structure. Government is doing everything it's supposed to do. The problem is the moral input, not the output. It's, it's affecting the output, but the, the, the style or the manner or the structure of the output, not the problem. The problem is, as, as Protestants in particular, we've started, we've told ourselves that we don't have to worry so much about the moral input. That's, that's overbearing. That's coercive. We need to control the power through limitation via the structure. And I'm saying that's a fool's errand, and it, it is also in principle uh, incorrect. It's, it's actually departing from the rehabilitation of government to its proper role morally, religiously, and vis-a-vis the, the human nature itself. So I know so Andrew and me, Jonathan, you both have something to say. I just want to make sure if you guys can make your comment or reply short, yeah. I do want to give some time to the questions that have come in. I'll, I'll be done. Uh, that is a long one. So, Well, I have one, I have one quick follow-up. So it, it seems to me that like we have distinguished differences in the structure of government itself and its relationship to um, religion and the church. Uh, there's also hermeneutical differences here. Uh, Timon, is it fair to say – and like your reading of Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen, you mentioned, like you're not reading that covenantally in light of the New Testament. You're reading that almost, I guess, archety- archetypally. Is that the right term? As an archetype for proper church-state relations. Yeah, I would, I would say um, not even that fancy. I'm just reading it like normatively. I guess would that be like getting at what you're saying? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I, again, this isn't meant to be a gotcha. I guess no, I'm no, trying yeah. to figure out like. If, if 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 you can adopt kind of a a prima facie Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen church state model, like uh, I know Brad mentioned, this doesn't imply theonomy. Um, I, I guess I'm failing to see like how this doesn't entail it in some, I in some sense. I yeah. I'll give a real quick answer, which which actually Jonathan's already kind of uh, mentioned the the problem with theonomy is uh, not, in my view, what, what other people will critique. It's that they don't have a proper taxonomy of law. And so they don't understand what the, the judicial law in the, uh, the Old Testament is, or the civil law, which is an instantiation of, of human law informed by the natural law. So it's a particular application of the, the natural law by a legislature, which happens to be God in that instance. And so it's a perfect example, a perfect, uh, you know, formulation but because it's human law it's always tied this is what the Westminster Confession says and I imagine that 1689 does as well it dissolves with that polity so that's why it's not um, you you can't just transport it into any civil uh, context but Aquinas Luther and, and many others would say but if one of those laws does appropriately with prudence fit your polity Feel free to use it. There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they're perfect. Um, but it's but you can't the the uh, the type of law it is just doesn't isn't meant to be transported. And I think I think all like all of our um, confessional affiliations would to some extent recognize that. I don't think that's like a controversial point uh, in itself. But that's that's how I would distinguish. Three and a half comments. Three comments, maybe a question. 
I think I can do it fast. First, yes, the Deuteronomy 17, Andrew. I'm glad you raised that. Uh, a team, I, I would just say, I would just say, I, I think you're 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 making covenantal problems there by applying that directly to the king. I think Davidic king, the, the king in under the Mosaic covenant is in a, is in a different position than the kings of the nations. Um, just flagging that. I, I don't think he plays the same job. He doesn't have the same job. The Davidic king is not the same job that kings today do, um, as I understand it. He, he did have a perfectionist mandate, whereas kings of the nations don't. Um, uh, and that's why I just say, brother, come back to your Baptist roots. Come home. Come home. <laughs> I, I mean, he will, whether I mean, it's now or in glory. I know. Just, just to make sure, you're, it was getting quiet. You just... I won't follow up at all. Just you said your distinction is the the role has been uh, transformed at least yeah. for these purposes. Okay, yeah. that's it. Gotcha. Second, I would say the, the blasphemy thing. People running around need to preserve order, so of course you're going to enforce it. Well, that, that would seem to apply. That that would, that sort of seems to cut both ways. I mean, so for a Muslim society, if we're running around saying all is you know, a false prophet. I mean, I mean, uh, Muhammad's a pro- false prophet, and you know, Allah is God. Does that mean we should be you know, for the sake of order and peace, should we be criminalized there as Christians? The third thing I would say. Okay. Go ahead. Just have a quick yeah. anecdote or follow up on that. This is one of my favorite lines from William Prynne. You know, who's a bit of a provocateur. He says, "All all kingdoms, including Nebuchadnezzar's and everyone else, punish idolatry, blasphemy, immorality, and they're right in principle. They're wrong in the object. So they're halfway there." And it's just necessarily what governments do. And he says that's why Daniel is is punished. It's for yeah. blasphemy. And that's actually appropriate. It's just Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the moral input is wrong. That's yeah. you know. So that's what I would say to that. Yeah, yeah. And that's precisely what I said before. Where I, I, Actually, I think Christianity doesn't. I think it's the one system we're given where it says, no, we don't publish uh, punish. I think that's what makes us as Protestants. The third thing, and this, you know, just to make sure you guys, in some sense, where my sympathies are with you. Whoever says the blood of man, by man shall his blood be man, for God was for man was made in God's own image. I do think the text gives us attention there. On the one hand, uh, we're not authorized to prosecute crimes against God. We're authorized to prosecute crimes against human beings. On the other hand, our view of justice, our understanding that crimes against man should be prosecuted, comes from the fact that man was made in God's own image, which is to say, a society that denies God is going to quickly veer towards injustice and its government and kings and princes. Johnson, if, if, but if I, I do can, think that, I do I think the text that. leaves us a tension right there that we want to resolve, but I actually don't think we are authorized to resolve. Andrew? Yeah, no. Right, it, just, can you, can you just hold it to about 30 seconds and then yeah, we'll go to yeah, questions yeah, after that? Yeah, just for that sake, I, I would say, like, I, I actually, even as a Baptist, strongly endorse the language of in God we trust yeah. for the for the purposes that you just mentioned. Okay. And then I guess Jordan, do the you final place to... I'd have a question for you is going to be worth exploring maybe in future conversations. It's just going back to your phrase, Timon, coercive conditions conducive to conversions. Where, where Somewhere you and Brad have a limit, and it would be interesting that government can't do. Where is that limit? Where and how do you draw a line? I think that would be... And the, the converse to that would be somewhere you and Andrew have a limit 
to your toleration and liberty and yeah, what like, is it that, that it, like, so that that would be the uh well said, right because no one wants wants that um my ceiling on toleration would be lower but there's a reason for that and yours is higher and then yeah, the, right. the other direction we, you were saying the same thing yeah i think that's right well clearly we could continue on in this format uh, without taking questions probably for another hour but I did want to be faithful to our promise to allow those who have been watching and listening to submit questions and have our experts here answer them. So first of all, thanks to all four of you guys for talking through this so far. This has been excellent. Uh, the first question that I want to go ahead and ask here is for Dr. Lehman and or Dr. Walker. And it's, what's your response to the common claim stated tonight by Dr. Littlejohn that a Baptist political theology can't provide guidance for a Christian majority. Uh, I'll take that. Um, I would, I mean, I, I acknowledged that I think Baptists have never formulated a strong doctrine of statecraft, which I'm, I'm trying to work on that in the book that I'm working on right now. Um, but at the same time, you go to the Baptist faith and message article 17 on the Christian, the social order, uh, it seems to imply that that is uh, within the realm of possibility for Baptist thought. Uh, but again, I think that Baptists have t traditionally tended to have a negative view of the state as persecutorial in nature because of our history. Um, and so to me, um, that's, that's a project that I feel like I'm undertaking as a Baptist. And so I, I think part of what I would say is, is, you know, sit tight and, and, read the book that's coming out. I mean, I, I have an article that I wrote an American former, I think called against catacomb Christianity, which kind of lays out um, some initial seedlings on uh, thinking Baptist Baptistically about the state about stewarding power for just ends, not just Christian ends, but truly common good ends. Uh, Jonathan, did you want to add anything to that? The, the question was, how can we can't? How, how do we guide towards the good? What was the question? Say it again one more time. Yeah, what, what's the response to the claim that a Baptist political theology can't provide guidance for a Christian majority? Can't provide guidance for a Christian majority. I mean, I if we have a Christian majority, I, I think it can. I I guess I'm not sure. I accept the premise of the question. I I think we say government is is called to is is. Brad pointed out from from Romans thirteen, called to enforce the good and punish the bad. What is the good that is to 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 enforce? It's a limited jurisdictional protection. Is good. It's going to protect life. You know, it's going to protect uh, the ability of of uh, creatures to flourish. I think there's going to be some good Christian debates over how expansive that goes. Right? How redistributionist the government becomes. Genesis 9, 5, and 6 is set inside of the context of Genesis 9, 1, and 7. Not 1 and 7, both repeat the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, which is to say 5 and 6, authorization of coercion, serves the purposes of the dominion mandate. That's not to say the government fulfills the dominion mandate. That's to say people fulfill the dominion mandate, and the government exists to facilitate that. Teach you to read so you can read the Bible, right? So... Yeah, I think there's there's plenty of good a, a Christian majority could do. Okay. So, Brad, in time, and this question is for you guys. Uh, it says, with anthropology being key to social order, how does the human will with respect to the duty of mankind to believe affect the way you believe the state should encourage or enforce Christianity? 
time you want me to take that first? Okay. Um, yeah. So I think this is important. And this is where uh, I don't agree with what Jonathan's saying. As uh, I, I agree with the direction in which he's saying, not as far as he goes, uh, in saying, you know, Christianity is unique. Um, the, the Christianity approaches the idea of established religion differently than paganism. Um, and I would say it is different because, and I would say Protestantism especially, because of an understanding of justification by faith, in which we, paganism can say, uh, the gods are happy if we do X, Y, and Z. And if the gods are happy, they're going to bless this 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 um, polity, and that's going to be great. So we just need to make sure that everybody does X, Y, and Z, and then the gods will be happy. Uh, Protestantism says just doing X, Y, and Z doesn't necessarily make God happy, um, because God is honored through true faith, which is which is seated in the in the will, and therefore just going through the motions doesn't cut it. So I would say that to this extent, um, I think there is a place, uh, and maybe time and I differ somewhat on this, um, but that Protestantism in particular does take a somewhat more restrained view of the way in which the government promotes true religion. Um, and and that's why, I mean, I think Timon's line, though, coercive conditions conducive to conversion is is true. Um, that a, a pagan state can just say, hey, everybody right now, like, go and offer sacrifice to Zeus, and, you know. Um, and a, a Protestant state is more like, well, you know, what we want to do is create the conditions conducive to people actually coming to true saving faith, right? Um, which is to say, not just, you know, everybody go pay your tithes to your church building right now, right? But things like teaching people to read, translating the Bible, disseminating the Bible, making sure that that effective teachers of the scriptures are well paid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think it, that's why, I think it is more a matter of uh, the, the positive promotion of the context within which people can come to faith than it is enforcing certain religious activity. I think the enforcing of religious activity, the negative is primarily for the sake of social order, right? Um, don't let people blaspheme in the streets to keep chaos from breaking out. Not because blasphemy in the streets, if you, oh, if you keep them blaspheming in the streets, then they'll be saved. No, that's not true, right? Yeah, I think I think we'd basically so, uh, agree, Brad. I, w I would say... Um, Maybe just add two things. Yeah, the the coercive conditions, I, I look at them as being very expansive. And I think, again, my analogy to the present of whatever you want to call the prevailing uh, morality that actually get, governs policy, um, look at how it's disseminated and it's it's everywhere, right? So, um, and you can take your pick of, of XYZ favorable uh, issue. Uh, that's that's popular that you're supposed to believe that you're supposed to be into, um, and you notice uh, you know things with gender and sexuality how quickly it compounds. Uh, we've seen all the stats about like you know one kid in the social group uh, does X Y they they all start doing it, and their teachers are talking about it, and the literature's out there, and the TV shows are so it's it's not I'm I'm not fixated just on media, but in our in our in our context today, that would, would have to be a consideration. Um, but the, the world you live in, the cultural world, um, reflects the, the values. It reflects the morality and it's conducive to you converting to and committing to certain things. 
and this is where I, where I would move into the second point, which is in the the narrow discussion we're having, or maybe I'm just having, but I we're we're having is for purposes of purposes of social order, for the purposes of of life here. I've already said you know it should direct you to uh, man to to his eternal. Uh, considerations and, and ultimately destiny, but for the purposes of social order, I do not care if the conversions are real. It does not. It does not matter if it is a, a Christian society that is moral and that is um, that that produces a, a sort of um, coercive apparatus that that perpetuates Christian activity. I think you're going to have just as many, if not more, conversions there as you do in a. a liberal, pluralist, tolerant society that is the product of the, the Great Awakening or whatever, just especially the second one where we get all the crazy stuff. Um, I think there's no way, you know, that's, that's a wild time. But the, um, I, 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 that's what I would much prefer. I'd much prefer to live in that one. Um, and I think you have the same challenges that you have today, the same challenges of doubt, of uh, questions of true justification, all those things. They're not eliminated by either model. So I would choose the one that is, is more comfortable uh, to live in and where everything makes it really, really easy to be a Christian. That is what I'd say the con- coercive co- conditions should produce. That's what they do always produce. Uh, so the current coercive conditions make it really, really easy to be many other things. And that's the whole point. And those are, you know, governmentally enforced in a certain way, um, just as uh, we have different mechanisms of doing it now, but blasphemy is still is still challenged or or punished in certain ways. Maybe it's through shaming. Maybe it's through removal of the of the statements. Who knows? But you're not that different, you know, than it than it used to be. Um, and as Brad said, the point is not to punish blasphemy because by doing so, you think they're going the person's gonna come to their senses and uh, you know convert. Although you do hope that, just like with the law against theft, you hope people don't just steal because they're afraid of going to prison. They don't steal because they realize it's wrong because the law tells them so. Um, so this is just, I think, inherent. Um, in the things we're talking about, the institutional logic of what government is and what people are, I think produces some of these conclusions, even without, as Brad said, a, a particular, uh, you know, mandate to change. Um, so, so I don't follow with with Jonathan, obviously, but I, his point is well taken of, of his view of a covenantal transition. Um, I would say the, the the logic of what the thing is has not changed, just as it hasn't really changed in the, in the church either. The two institutions uh, carry on uh, whatever covenantal distinctions you want to make or lack of continuity insert, uh, notwithstanding. I think that the things themselves have fundamental uh, principles in them and behind them. Their character dictates how they have to act. All right, so let's, let's just do one more question because um, I want to be respectful of y'all's time and not go too much uh, over what we had agreed on. So this last question is for uh, Dr. Liebman's from Mason. He says, uh, how would you view the Gentile kings and rulers in the Bible who enforce true worship in their kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, king of Nineveh after Jonah's preaching, etc.? This would appear to be biblical authorization and commendation for establishment outside of the nation of Israel. Yeah, the one place I'm aware of that happening is is in Dan, Daniel 3, where Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, I don't know about Darius doing that, but Nebuchadnezzar making some sort of declaration that, you know, that all people worship the God of Daniel or some, something, something like that. Uh, honestly, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I think that, I've, I've looked at that, I've, I've, I've pondered that. 
um, is that normative for us? Is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying there normative, that is to say, binding on us and acting as an authorization for all kings to do likewise? Uh, it's not clear to me that it is, precisely because he had just done the same thing, albeit for a different god, right? So that would suggest that we could prosecute people for having the wrong god, but that assumes we have the power of the sword in the hand of the right god. What's to guarantee that to be continued? So do we do Bible translation back to Brad's point? Well, uh, you might have heard me. I threw it. Well, is that the Apocrypha? See, all of this presumes that we have the right God in place, and the 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 the, the leader is the king is is endorsing the right God. But the moment that changes, you're in trouble, right? As Nebuchadnezzar attested. And is there any guarantee that we continue with the right God? Now, at this point, obviously, I'm making a pragmatic argument. I freely acknowledge I'm, I'm making, in some ways, a David French argument at this point. Um, uh, nonetheless, I, I do think that pragmatic argument lands. Does the single example I'm aware of, Daniel 3, undermine that? Uh, that would be one good place to push me. I'm not clear, certain it does. That would be one good place to push. Uh, Jordan, awesome. can I chime in real quick? Um, I mean, this pragmatic yeah. argument is very, very common, so I'm glad you brought it up because this discussion wouldn't have been complete without it, right? Why should we give empower a Christian state when giving that when that same power could be used against us by a non-Christian state? And I would just say the, that David French argument proves too much. On that basis, we shouldn't empower the state with anything whatsoever because if we're saying I, it's, I don't see any difference between that and the logic that says. We should not trust the state with the sword to put to death existential threats to the society because the Nazis used the sword to put together the Jews who they thought were existential threats to the society. I mean, I think it's any power can be abused. Um, and that's, uh, as Timon said, what matters is the right moral inputs. So I think if you're going to believe that government has powers at all, you recognize those powers can be used to right ends or wrong ends, and the fear of wrong ends doesn't disprove the validity of using it for the good ends. Andrew, I want if you can give me a 30-second answer to this. I think this is an interesting question. Uh, it, it's for you. It's Is disobedience to the gospel a violation of natural law, given that a dictate of natural law is that God is to be obeyed, whether on the basis of general or special revelation? Yes, because it's a violation, ultimately, of the eternal law. So, I mean, the gospel, I mean, the gospel, uh, you come to the gospel through acknowledgement, acknowledgement of having done wrong against the, the law. The law is given by a lawgiver. Uh, the law emanates because of the eternal law of God himself. So, yes. All right. Helpful. So, brothers, this has been awesome. Um, I do want to emphasize again uh, the commonality that Andrew brought forth multiple times that we all share. Um, I mean, I think we probably agree on what it seemed like 80 to 85 percent with this sort of area goes, especially when you when you talk about the basics of Christianity, when you go to the Apostles Creed and all that stuff, obviously we're all in agreement with that. So I think that has made for a great conversation. So thank you 
all for um, this time. Hopefully, you guys who've been listening, this has been super helpful for you. Um, hopefully, it's got the wheels spinning. That's what we wanted to do was to bring together guys who think differently and to talk about something that's important. So thanks for everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.